Looking at the laboratory data, somehow we saw that in fact there was a progressive decrease of hemoglobin in the blood of uh, the majority of the patients with COVID-19, especially in the later stages, especially in the, the most critical situations, let's say. And that was demonstrated by several articles. And uh, contemporaneously, we also checked many other articles, and we also saw that ferritin, which is the let's say the iron which is deposited in the tissues was extremely extremely high do you want to know what it is body mind empowerment get stronger faster smarter quicker friendlier more helpful more driven everything the body needs control your mind Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm a host, Seamland, and our guest today is Dr. Attilio Cavezzi. Attilio is a vascular surgeon from Italy. His area of expertise is venous and lymphatic diseases. In this episode, we're going to talk about an alternative hypothesis for the cause of COVID-19. This episode is brought to you by Katsu Training. Katsu bands incorporate blood flow moderation training that trick the body into thinking that it's lifting heavier weights than it actually is. When traditional weightlifting requires you to reach 70 to 80% of your one repetition maximum to stimulate muscle hypertrophy, then Katsu achieve that effect only at 20 to 30%. So it's perfect for treating injuries or use when you don't have access to heavy weights. These things are a game changer and I use them almost every day. Research about katsu bands also shows it lowers blood pressure, speeds up recovery from injuries, releases stem cells, builds muscle, burns fat and prevents age-rated muscle loss. Plus, you can travel with them easily and still get a good workout on the road. If you want to try out the katsu cycle bands, then use the code SEAM for a 10% discount at katsu-global.com. That's katsu-global.com and the 10% code is SEAM, S-I-I-M. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we are doctors who are somehow taking care of COVID or directly or indirectly, let's say. But at the end of the day, what, what's happening is still a kind of unknown outbreaking disease. So let's say that talking to each other and talking to several other doctors, we started to understand that there, were, there, sh there should have been something more than just what they call pneumonia since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Of course, we don't know what's behind, but we are trying to put forward more hypotheses, let's say. We are talking just about hypotheses, not just about any sure and demonstrated, you know, process. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, this entire uh, thing has been a pretty, let's say, uh, you know, a lot of mis misinformation and also like changing of uh, narratives and you know current initially people thought that it was only like um, a respiratory disease but uh, after a while we kind of realized that it's actually much more than that and uh, has many other you know consequent uh, effects yeah yeah in fact i mean uh, everything in, i mean I, i'm dealing with vascular surgery and especially venous lymphatics but then i was uh, fascinated let's say by integrative medicine and going ahead in the last years i discovered that sometimes medicine can widen the horizons so talking to doctors especially from the north of italy where we had and we have a lot of problems let's say I started to understand and they asked me, what else can we do? What else can we think about this uh, disease? 
So to make it short, I started to read a lot and I started to talk to other friends such as Dr. Troiani and Professor Corrao. And uh, we tried to elaborate on uh, different possibilities, let's say, how to investigate and especially how to go ahead to manage this uh, disease. Because from China, we got the, the meaning that it was uh, basically a pneumonia. And so going ahead, uh, we started to see different findings. That's why the title of our uh, publication, which is uh, unfortunately just a narrative review, it's nothing demonstrated, let's say, but as a hypothesis, we thought that it was not just pneumonia, and the title says uh, hemoglobin, iron, hypoxia beyond inflammation. So it's a narrative review, but somehow we wanted to highlight that a few laboratory tests and other findings were not compatible just with pneumonia and uh, the acute respiratory distress syndrome only and sepsis. I mean, that's something that happens, of course, in the latest stages. But we started to understand that not only the infection and inflammatory component in the lungs was the main issue, because immunology uh, clearly demonstrated that this is a very important situation, a very important uh, process that happens in these patients. Uh, but Step by step, we started to understand that a series of, uh, let's say, uh, cardiovascular uh, events, uh, such as uh, thrombosis, uh, ischemia, myocardial infection, was ha were happening. Pulmonary embolism and uh, the, the disseminated intravascular coagulation and multi-organ failure somehow was uh, going on. So we started to read, we started to check the laboratory data and so on. And step by step, we started to introduce some more possible ideas, but probably the, the most important things that we read and that uh, pushed us to elaborate on something else came from two interesting articles, one from China and another one from Harvard in Boston and uh, London. I mean, uh, one article was uh, trying to explain uh, on the basis of uh, computational and genetic sequencing research that it's possible, well, it's not sure, unfortunately, but it's possible that the virus somehow tries to attack hemoglobin, which is so important for, I mean, it's the, the key molecule to transport oxygen in our body. So this possible attack to the, especially to the beta chains of hemoglobin, uh, would explain a kind of oxygen-deprived syndrome mm. on one side. On the other side, we, we read another very interesting articles, and I would say that we got in touch with these two authors before, let's say, advancing any more hypotheses. So the second, uh, let's say, research and the second hypothesis explained that somehow this virus, or better, the spike of this virus, uh, as a, some similarity to hepcidin. And hepcidin uh, somehow is considered a kind of key regulator of iron metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so if this virus would work like hepcidin in several cell receptors, it would increase a lot iron storage. So we are facing probably a disease which somehow decreases hemoglobin function 
and increases iron deposit. Right. Well, that was the very beginning of our uh, working, let's say. And uh, so this mimicry by the virus, uh, like hepcidin and uh, this uh, action on the hemoglobin, maybe happened together, or maybe one uh, exclude the other. We don't know at the moment because still research is, uh, of course, undergoing, and uh, we are waiting for further confirmation. Mm-hmm. There was a progressive decrease of hemoglobin in the blood of uh, the majority of the patients with COVID-19, especially mm-hmm. in the later stages, especially in the, the most critical situations, let's say. And that was demonstrated by several articles. And uh, contemporaneously, we also checked many other articles, and we also saw that ferritin, which is the let's say the iron which is deposited in the tissues was extremely extremely high so that was the very beginning somehow well i can elaborate more if you want but that was the very beginning okay yeah that's pretty uh, interesting and uh, it um, does kind of explain a lot of the uh, reasons why uh, we saw this initial spike in deaths in people who were put into like ventilators so we were tackling like the wrong system so to say well i mean uh, lungs are somehow affected uh, both by the infection and by these uh, let's say derangement of uh, iron and oxygen system uh, hemoglobin system so it's probably an altogether they call it this virus they call it a kind of uh, uh, Trojan horse. I mean, it's a very complicated issue, probably what we are facing. That's why it's not so easy. But of course, the problem is uh, if you treat only the symptoms or just say the, 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 the tip of the iceberg, like uh, pneumonia, well, that happens somehow that the lung involvement is there. It's demonstrated, but that's not all because probably there is also an attack to the endothelium and that means that all body is uh, somehow affected by the virus. So at the moment, for sure, we don't know if the original pathologic viral process begins in the lungs, and that generates, of course, some hypoxia and uh, all the rest. But uh, also it could be that together, before or after, we don't know at the moment, this iron hemoglobin, this metabolism, can be at the root of several multi-organ diseases and the hypoxia uh, which is uh, the, the the root problem of uh, uh, this disease because at the end of the day all patients uh, are getting into hypoxia hmm. and uh, that leads uh, unfortunately to ARDS but ventilators could be used probably in a very very selective cases as also was shown in several articles mm-hmm. Uh, what, you, what is like the role of, can you elaborate more about the role of hemoglobin itself and uh, how does it uh, affect, you know, oxygenation of the body? Yeah, I mean, we know that uh, to get oxygen from air and to expel CO2, we need uh, this molecule, which is made of uh, chains of uh, beta-globin and in the center there is iron. Uh, which is normally in uh, in two forms. I mean, the, uh, the oxidized and the reduced form. So the ferrous uh, form of the iron is the one which binds oxygen 
and then release the oxygen where needed, I mean everywhere in the body, for the uh, mitochondria action and so on and so on. And then connects to, um, uh, this connects to the whole metabolism of the body. When this hemoglobin cannot work properly, let's say in a quote, because of course some hemoglobin is still working there, because just for example, normally hemoglobin is around 13, 14 or something like that. Well, in these patients, uh, we see often going down to 9, 8, and that happens sometimes in 15, 20 days. Not in all patients, of course, luckily. But when things go wrong, this molecule goes down and it's not working. You are not losing blood. That's the issue because hemoglobin may go down when you have a hemorrhage, for example. Okay, But in this case, there is no hemorrhage. And so something wrong with hemoglobin happens. It could be the infection. Most doctors think it is infection which denaturates hemoglobin process and so on. But in just 14 days, 15 days, 20 days, you see a dramatic drop of hemoglobin in, in the worst scenario. I mean, and that means that you cannot transport the oxygen. You cannot have a good saturation. But there is one issue which is important. In this case, in the vast majority of the cases, I mean, of this disease, CO2 is not going up as everybody would expect when the lung goes wrong. I mean, when you face a typical ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, the lung is compromised, okay, so you cannot take oxygen and you cannot expel CO2. That is not happening in up to 80% of the patients, according to Gattinoni's paper, for example, and other papers. So lung compliance probably is not so bad in the vast majority of the cases, especially until critical stages come. If that's the case, so hemoglobin is the problem, O2 is the problem, the patients go down in saturation, but they, they showed, for example, pictures of patients talking on the phone with very low oxygen saturation, such as a 70 or even 60. And then they suddenly go from a apparently normal situation to a catastrophic low saturation and even fatal uh, exitus, you know, that's strange. I mean, CO2 is the signal to our body to go into dyspnea. So uh, difficulty in breathing is generated by the increase of CO2. Mm -hmm. The problem is that in this disease, CO2 is not going up so much until critical stages come. So that's why the patients do not recognize they're getting low oxygen in their cells. Mm -hmm. And of course, this means a lot of changes inside the body because somehow uh, that leads hypoxemia, of course, but let, that leads a lot of uh, metabolism issues. Mm. So it's that's kind of this explains this long uh, incubation period as well, uh, where people don't know that they have any, or they don't know that they are sick and they're just uh, functioning as normally, and then there's some sort of like a threshold event where they do go, um, you know, into more hypoxia and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they call, for example, the cytokine, the interleukin storm, and that's the, 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 the last and worst part of the disease. 
that could be could be also a, qu a question of uh, uh, hypoxia and CO2. Furthermore, if we look at uh, the let's say the iron metabolism, it's also a matter of ferritin because the higher the ferritin, the worse the situation also for breathing and for metabolism in general. So this kind of uh, second worst stage where a few patients enter, not all patients luckily, uh, it's, it's generated probably by the combination of a lung progressive dysfunction, progressive hypoxia and also progressive increase of ferritinia. Can you imagine that ferritin usually is around, let's say, 100. And uh, for example, Mercola suggests that above 100, you have a kind of a chronic inflammation in your body. And that's correct, I mean, because ferritin is a, a marker of inflammation. And we know that mm -hmm. inflammaging is something that we have to combat lifelong. So uh, let's say that 100 would be that the threshold or something like that, these patients exhibit above 1,000, 2,000, wow. even 4,000 in the worst cases. Wow. And I cannot think it's just a matter of infection because we know that infection produces hyperferritinemia and that's okay. And again, could be the consequence of lungs, of lung disease. Okay, I, I may accept it. But it is a very high, high uh, ferritinemia, which could be explained once more by the hepcidin-like activity of the virus. Could mm. be explained. Unfortunately, we are not able, no one is able at the moment. But when I published the article, I can tell you very sincerely that I was reached and I reached other researchers uh, who agreed on the necessity to study more because iron metabolism is something important we know that viruses love iron and hate oxygen hmm. and there were there are papers which clearly report that somehow viruses were used to very let's say ancient atmosphere environment let's call it so they hate oxygen because a long time ago there was no oxygen there was a lot of iron probably so they want to reproduce the same environment in our body. That's why iron goes up. And when iron goes up, you can see, you can see it from the laboratory data and not only ferritin, but also serum iron goes down because all iron is deposited in the tissues. And that's toxic, extremely toxic. Mm -hmm. And it generates, for example, mitochondria degeneration. And it is called for, uh, let's say, ferroptosis. Uh, ferroptosis is the typical deranged metabolism due to iron excess in the cells. You get a lot, a lot of oxidative stress and a lot of uh, anaerobic reaction because you lack oxygen, you have a lot of iron. So cells undergo lipoperoxidation and mitochondria degeneration. And when I looked, for example, at the lactate, uh, venous or arterial lactate uh, in a few articles, it was invariably high. So mm -hmm. the more was I was reading, the more I was convinced that mitochondria were really degenerating and there, were, there was a, a kind of storm which was affecting uh, surely the blood, surely the vessels, and surely not just the lung, let's say. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's a pretty phenomenon that... that uh 
with the infection your iron levels were like 10 times higher than is you know considered yeah. safe <laughs> so that's pretty yeah. crazy like is it is it because uh, that the virus or the infection uh, makes your iron go up or is it that if you already have high iron then you're already like more susceptible to like catching the infection well it could be both i mean uh, those who exhibit the higher ferritin could be a matter of, uh, let's say, inflammation, let's say rheumatoid arthritis, just for example, a chronic degenerative disease. Well, it's a typical high ferritin uh, disease, but, but we talk about 200, 300, 400. Okay, and that's a little bit predisposing factor in case of COVID, for example, the high ferritin, the, the, the baseline, let's say. But as a matter of fact, any virus, uh, we talk about herpes virus, uh, AIDS, we talk about hepatitis, always, always induces a, a sort of a hyperferritinemia syndrome hmm. because it's probably a matter of reproducing a good environment for itself, let's say. Okay. And uh, that happens uh, through different metabolic pathways. In this case, this researcher from Boston discovered a possible mimicry from virus uh, just like behaving just like hepcidin and to make it simple hepcidin is to iron as insulin is to glucose this is what we wrote in the article so hepcidin is responsible to remove iron from the blood and to get it into the cells which is good sometimes when you need it, of course, because you may have uh, too much iron in your blood for different reasons, let's say a lot of transfusions or some uh, hematological disease and so on and so on. But which is bad in many other cases, such as in this case or in uh, uh, hyperferritinemia diseases, which goes, uh, it is a, a strong inducer of, uh, let's say, inflammation, first of all, and degeneration because ferroptosis is a kind of new world and a new world which has been promoted in the last four or five years and it is really representing another metabolic pathway through which any degeneration even aging comes and so this is something probably to to keep in mind because it's uh, anyway not just a matter of virus in, like in this case mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, the uh, the virus kind of replicates or creates more iron, or yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. All the metabolic processes of the virus are somehow facilitated when they enter in the cell, uh, also thanks to the deposition of iron. Which, uh, let's say, because the control of mitochondria for the virus is important, because mitochondria can be useful for replication but then you know mitophagy mitophagy is important for apoptosis let's say the programmed cell death so when mitochondria uh, don't work well they go away let's say mitophagy and that regulates apoptosis in this case virus brings a kind of altered apoptosis because of the altered mitochondrial metabolism which is demonstrated for example by the lactate increase of course lactate is not 
the only market we should study much more, but that's not possible at this moment. We should study mitochondria in different ways, as we know. But anyway, this is a, a marker of mitochondrial degeneration in this disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you don't have like properly working mitochondria, then your body doesn't have like the ability to heal itself either and uh, to yeah. deal with with the virus. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is a matter of oxygen, as I told uh, at the beginning, because uh, no oxygen or low oxygen means uh, uh, less, let's say, oxidative phosphorylation, Krebs cycle, and so on, and more uh, anaerobic uh, glycolysis, and that's very bad for the cells. And uh, not only you have the iron, which is uh, changing the mitochondrial activity through ferroptosis, lipoperoxidation, free radicals which are produced in an extremely high level. But these are not are not studied, of course, free radicals in these patients, but we can expect extremely, extremely high values. Mm. Yeah, and it kind of reveals again the importance of uh, managing iron itself in general for like overall health and longevity because like iron is uh you know it can rust like iron in real life can rust and iron in your body can also rust and yeah that's yeah, absolutely also, again like oxidative stress and accelerates aging and uh, many diseases yeah yeah phantom reaction for example is extremely higher in these cases and in all those cases when you have a, a lot of iron and uh, so Let's say that it's another pathway to keep in mind when we talk about, generally speaking, atherosclerosis, neurodegeneration, diabetes, and so on and so on. Any mm -hmm. chronic degenerative disease and aging as yeah. overall. Yeah. And uh, like, for, like, w would you imagine that uh, as a preventative tool, uh, keeping your iron levels below 100 is a, like a safe, safe thing or it's at least something to aim for? Yeah, yeah, ferritin, which is the, the iron in the deposit, let's say in the cell, in the tissues, ferritin is important, probably more than uh, serum iron. But again, in these patients, in COVID-19 patients, generally speaking, serum iron is low and ferritin is extremely high. In, uh, let's say, chronic degenerative disease, that could be the same, but of course at much lower level. I mean, we can uh, see many patients with the 250, 300, which is already enough to be into inflammation, let's say. And epsidin somehow has been neglected in the past because we didn't know this uh, in very important molecule because hepsidin somehow... Uh, works blocking uh, another molecule which, which is called ferroportin, mm -hmm. which is the one which brings the iron out of the cell into the, uh, the blood, let's say. So when you block this molecule, and that's the role of hepcidin, then you store the iron into the cell, and that's the problem when it is too much. The, the good thing is that uh, we know that we can somehow help or reduce the activity of hepcidin through different pathways, I mean, pathophysiological pathways, or through drugs or compounds. And that's something that could, in case, have a role even in COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Which one? Or like what, what kind of strategies? Well, I mean, generally speaking, uh, if we talk about pathophysiology pathways, 
we know that hepcidin uh, uh, somehow is increased in its activity when the iron in the serum is too high when you have inflammation especially interleukin 6 which is the one which has been uh, let's say addressed more during covid-19 because it's probably the most important interleukin 6 also when you have low oxygen you have a higher activity of hepcidin and especially this is of interest obesity and diabetes if you look at the uh, the individuals who die for covid-19 the, the majority of them had the obesity and or diabetes. And that's due, first of all, because uh, of uh, this hyperactivity of hepcidin, probably. Mm. But everybody knows that the glycated hemoglobin is a problem in diabetics, okay? And that means that not only the virus reduces probably hemoglobin, denaturates probably hemoglobin, but these patients have already a quote of denaturated hemoglobin because of diabetes. Wow. That's unfortunately a kind of uh, storm, disaster for these uh, patients because they have low hemoglobin, dysfunctional hemoglobin, then the virus. And uh, just as a, let's say, a reminder, we have uh, a receptor in this disease which is called CD147 which is probably important if not more at least as the classical ACE2 which everybody speaks about so this receptor which is especially in the erythrocytes in the endothelial cells this receptor is overexpressed unfortunately in the diabetics this means that the diabetics may have a higher predisposition to the viral entrance in the cell. Wow. If you want to antagonize, let's say, hepcidin, from the pathophysiology point of view, hepcidin is reduced in its activity when the iron is low in the serum or when you have low oxygen and when you have anemia. But uh, if we speak about, let's say, compounds that we can use in this case, well, we can speak about, for example, uh, a few drugs such as metformin, and uh, everybody knows it's for diabetes, okay, but also heparin. For example, now uh, you probably know that uh, basically all patients undergo some prevention or treatment with anticoagulants. Mm -hmm. because of the demonstrated the coagulation problems in these patients. And then, this is a very interesting option, not only because you somehow combat the coagulation problems, but also because heparin is a kind of hepcidin antagonist. Uh, I mean, dalteparin, enoxaparin, fondaparinux, and so on and so on. These are all antagonist of epsilin and maybe that's another pathway through which heparin may help these patients. Of course, you have also some specific uh, drugs such as uh, um, those called, uh, let's say, anti-ILS or epsilin monoclonal antibodies and ferroportin mimetic antibodies and so on and so on. But also vitamin D, for example, works a little bit against uh, Hepcidin. This was shown in a few papers, and we we included these references into the let's say into the paper. 
Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's 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 really good. Like the uh, like a higher blood sugar and uh, insulin resistance would uh, yeah cause additional uh, hemoglobin dysfunction. And uh, that's that's if you have less hemoglobin, then you also have less oxygen, and therefore you have like a lower threshold at which the symptoms of COVID nineteen become severe and uh, critical. Yeah, probably it's a combination of different things and the, the, the hypoxia is uh, the, the leading factor and the hypoxia can come of course from uh, as they state uh, the lungs and uh, the, the endothelial attack and everything is coherent but there could be also a kind of role for uh, this iron this metabolism and uh, hemoglobin uh, let's say denaturation for a quote of course and anyway, we are lucky because the vast majority of the individuals, the, the subjects who get uh, SARS-CoV-2, don't get very relevant symptoms, okay? But those who go worse invariably show a lot of laboratory tests which demonstrate an iron dysmetabolism and uh, uh, this dysfunctional hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. But the good thing is that not only we can use the classical antiviral, okay, drugs or repurposed drugs such as stem cells or azithromycin or whatever, and especially hydroxychloroquine as most trials demonstrate. But okay, we have many other things from the natural compounds. If you want, we can talk about vitamin C, which is fundamental in my humble opinion in these patients, and many others, such as melatonin and polyphenols and glutathione and zinc. We describe these possibilities in the paper, but the more we go on and the more we read about other authors who suggest how to use these very cheap uh, interventions, let's say, to help these patients. And not always cheap interventions are loved by traditional, let's say, biomedical science, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure, yeah. And uh, uh, like, uh, I, I can also add like a few uh, iron gelators to the list, like uh, yeah. turmeric uh, or... Uh, yeah, know, absolutely. Or even like uh, black coffee or green tea can uh, gelate, gelate iron. Yes. Yeah, yeah, there is, there is a demonstration that uh, curcumin and uh, catechins and uh, uh, anthocyanins are good polyphenols which can help in this case. Of course, there is no trial, unfortunately. But if we talk about vitamin C, for example, there are. There are more than probably at the moment 13 or 15 trials worldwide using intravenous vitamin C in these patients. I would suggest, as to the work that also Doris Law performed as a researcher, I would suggest that also oral vitamin C may play a role. And we put some, uh, let's say, concepts into the article because vitamin C is extremely useful under the form of intravenous use at high dose, okay? But the combination with the oral form is also important, or as a pre prevention, I mean, uh, as a... a low-level disease, so oral vitamin C is good, let's say three, four grams per day or whatsoever. Uh, but the combination in the worst cases with the intravenous and oral would be also profitable because the oral is the one 
oral administration is the one which has, let's say, a longer half-life and uh, generates uh, leave uh, L-ascorbate, which is uh, somehow responsible of uh, reducing the viral damage and the free heme damage to the wall. So, I mean, the combination of the two forms of ascorbic acid would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that vitamin C is able to keep the iron into ferrous form into the hemoglobin. And that's probably the most important thing we may do in these patients with vitamin C. Because we know that the ferrous form of iron into the hemoglobin is the only form which can bind oxygen. When it is in the oxidated form, I mean, when it is ferric, that's not able to bind oxygen. And vitamin C and glutathione together, they can work in keeping the iron at the center of the hemoglobin in the ferrous form, which is the one which binds oxygen. That's why probably vitamin C, in my humble opinion, could be included as a very important or an important, let's say, treatment in these patients. Yeah, and uh, it also helps with the cytokine storm and uh, lowers inflammation. Yeah, we have a lot of information about past studies in the sepsis, in the multi-organ failure and so on. So vitamin C has a long story of uh, beneficial effects in uh, any kind of infections. Uh, We know about the children and so on and so on. So at the end of the day, there are several reasons for which we can use this extremely inexpensive compound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's and it's a pretty safe as well. Yeah. Uh, what about yeah. like uh, you know bloodletting uh, for iron? Sorry, what about blood? Bloodletting, uh, you know, donating blood. Uh, you mean uh, transfusion? You mean? Yeah, like you know, you know, if you give, if you donate blood, then you can also get rid of some of the iron if you have higher iron. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- there are two two strategies from this point of view. One strategy, when you have a very low hemoglobin, is transfusion, of course, and that's something they are doing in, uh, let's say, selective cases because uh, with blood you may also transfuse erythropoietin, which is the hormone uh, which is uh, extremely important epo. Uh, extremely important to generate new erythrocytes and so on and so on. And on the other side, you can remove your blood. Uh, It is called ECM or extracorporeal uh, oxygenation and so on. So you remove and you can also help including more oxygen. Of course, we are talking about extremely complex uh, procedures, but they may have a role in selective cases. Okay. And uh, what about hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Uh, well, uh, you mean oxygenation, sorry? Hyper, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Hyperbaric, yes. Hyperoxygenation, yeah. I mean, that's another possibility, of course. You know that hyperbaric chambers are, uh, let's say, not easy to access in these cases for several reasons. But again, oxygen is what they need. Absolutely, especially in the latest stages. That's why more than ventilators and the intubation, whatever brings high level oxygen, I mean, not pressure, but high flow. 
And this is probably the major difference with the, the traditional incubation, intubation philosophy. I mean, high flow is much better than high pressure because at the end of the day, you need oxygen. And if lungs are working quite well at the, in uh, let's say 70, 80% of the cases, then you don't need to give pressure into the lungs. Okay, there is also risk about pulmonary embolism and so on and so on, but especially if the compliance, I mean the, the parenchyma is going not so bad, then you need to give just oxygen. And that's why the mask and that's why the, the, the more, the simpler ways are probably more beneficial than the intubation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Um, can you talk a little bit of, more about uh, the aspect of like strokes, people getting strokes, and uh, the h- hypertension aspect? Well, that's a quite complicated issue because hypertension is extremely, extremely diffuse. We know that because of, uh, first of all, the, 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 let's say the, the several factors which affect our. Uh, current life and the completely uh, dysregulation of the autonomous neural system, let's say. So it's not a matter just of uh, cholesterol, but it's a matter of several, several other factors, let's say. So hypertension may be an issue, may be an issue, but if we talk about stroke in these patients, we have to look at the several, several uh, pro-thromboembolic and pro-ischemic pathways which are somehow possible and described in these patients. Everybody knows that viruses in, induce a, a hyperactivation of all the inflammasome. Let's say the, the, the most important would be the NLRP3. Uh, the inflammasome is a cascade of all the mediator cytokines, and this means, anyway, hyperactivation of coagulation because it is also a kind of autoimmune-mediated procoagulant state. Furthermore, if we are convinced that heme, the part of hemoglobin which is somehow affected, is disturbing both blood and the wall, it's another inducing factor of a possible prothrombotic. Everybody knows that, for example, anemia induces vasoconstriction especially in the lungs but is uh, anyway inducing changes and if we took if we take into consideration for example iron metabolism also iron metabolism increases coagulation so it's a kind of a mix of uh, several pathways related to hypoxia related to iron related to viral direct and indirect action on the wall and on the i mean on the vascular endothelium and on the blood so uh, it's very difficult to explain where the stroke comes from last but not least when we talk about 2000 3000 4000 uh, ferritin it must give some ferroptosis, as we told, and uh, there are articles which clearly demonstrate that ferroptosis, uh, this uh, change in the metabolism of the iron, creates a kind of a parafibrin, which is not the classical fibrin which is formed into the 
capillaries or into the arteries or into the veins, but it is a kind of a fibrinolysis resistant clot formation. And that's the problem. I mean, when you talk to high level doctors who treat thrombosis and ischemia, and I have a, a lot of contacts with them because I'm a vascular surgeon, they tell that they give in a few patients everything, just like uh, uh, TPA or uh, anticoagulants of any kind, and they seem not to work at all. Because in this case, probably this kind of parafibrin formation is important. And that's why you get, for example, microcirculation problems than more than macro circulation problem in these patients. Okay. So it's the hypertension is more like the cause, not the effect. Or like a symptom. Well, yes, hypertension is a concomitant factor, we could say, because the majority of the patients who are above 60 and those who die are above 60s in the majority of the cases, the majority of these patients are hypertensive. But, well, I wouldn't give so much importance to, to this factor. I mean, the, uh, the pulmonary hypertension is much more important. That's another story, because we know that the lungs are involved in a kind of pulmonary hypertension, which is very important for the final degeneration of the lungs. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's, what's it like in uh, Italy right now? Like, uh, I, I actually heard that some scientists say that it's um, the COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 is virtually non-existent now. <laughs> after, after well, <laughs> we would love that it's not existing, but okay, we have still some... Uh, one, uh, sorry, 200, 300, 400 cases uh, a, a day, uh, but that depends absolutely on the, let's say, the way you test the patient. So we cannot say how many patients get uh, COVID at the moment. But of course, we are talking about a much lower incidence, but especially a lower pathogenicity. I mean, somehow uh, the summertime will bring probably some improvement in terms of uh, pathogenicity and uh, let's say fatal rate and so on and so on. But uh, let's say we don't know. We don't know what will happen in autumn. We don't know what's going on. Let's say that we should focus not just on the lungs because that would be a little bit uh, too little. I expect that people will take care of uh, some kind of uh, social distancing, uh, okay, masks uh, and so on. But, you know, I like vitamin C, I like vitamin D, glutathione, melatonin. These are compounds and polyphenols. These are compounds which work anyway in chronic degenerative diseases anyway. Yeah. But in this case, they may have... Uh, if not a preventative role, because no one knows, there is no randomized controlled trials which demonstrates anything at all, but somehow there are, let's say, sound bases to explain how these compounds may be useful in these patients. Mm, yeah, yeah, and totally, like, like you said, that even if it doesn't protect you against uh, catching the virus, it will still like improve your overall health or like lower your blood yeah. pressure or something, something, something else. So it's still like a beneficial thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, like, 
you what about like the summertime you know it does bring more vitamin d and more sunlight um but uh, like people would also spend more time outside you know breathing fresh air getting more oxygen from that so uh you know do you think that staying indoors is actually like more counterproductive because you are in this closed environment yeah yeah i completely agree you know I- I'm fond of uh, hormesis, of uh, psychoneuroendocrine immunology, of resilience, uh, mitochondria. So these aspects are part of our health. And uh, when you go outside, you get, as you told, vitamin D, but especially you interact, you get some grounding, if you like. And uh, we have the luck in Italy that we have a lot of... uh, uh, beaches and the sea and so on. Okay, mm-hmm. so all this stuff would be really beneficial. We know that. And the exposure to some uh, uh, natural ways to improve our health is very, very important. Because also, we didn't talk, because uh, it was not the task of our article, we didn't talk about the role of the PNEI system, I mean, psychoneuroendocrine immunology system, you know. And this is a network which is so, so important in a case like COVID-19. We can say that all our immunity is strictly, strictly regulated by the interaction with our brain, with our psychological aspect. Mm -hmm. So this network is so important that just for example, depression gives you low immunity, just for example. Yeah. And being closed indoor sometimes generates more depression. And anyway, this regulates PNEI system. PNEI is a, a very important aspect which has been neglected in medicine, in biomedical science. But the more I study, thanks also to Professor Bottaccioli and others, the more I realize that the resilience, resilience is probably the key factor which helps people to overcome even organic and infective disease. Well, mm-hmm. we know that resilience is the target of any hormetic pathway. That's why I love hormesis and I love to get more resilience for myself and for my patient. Psychological and biological resilience. So whatever we can do to increase our psychobiological resilience through hormesis, through the improvement of uh, psychological uh, work of our mind, I mean, meditation, prayer, breathing, and so on and so on. These are all things which help to increase and improve our immune system. This is fully demonstrated. And when you want to face an attack from a virus, you need to be a warrior. That's why I say, please build up the warrior which is in you. This is what I'm saying in my conferences here in Italy. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's awesome advice, and I totally agree that you know, and it's you know, the psychological stress does have a physiological effect on your body, and you can definitely you know jeopardize your immune system, or you can get sick, or you can make it more likely that you do get sick if you are like say anxious and fearful about the virus and and that sort of thing. So you can't really, uh, you know, be. Uh, you you can't let the virus uh, infect you psychologically, so to say. So there's the so there's yeah. the actual physical virus, and there's the also the psychological virus that is you know spreading across media and uh, the fear that you hear from other people and those things. So you have to like guard your mind against uh, those things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, chronic stress is unfortunately 
extremely, extremely uh, diffuse and uh, is a powerful negative uh, aspect of our life because we know that nutrition is extremely important to improve our health or conversely to, to, to get us sick. We know that uh, uh, physical exercise is so important, so lifestyle, but last but not least, chronic stress. So uh, let's say management of stress is very, very important because conversely, acute stress, which is hormesis, and you know it much better probably, well, hormesis is very important also in this patient. If you can expose to low dose of stress, that's hormesis, that would be profitable, for example. And just, just to mention, for example, sauna, Sauna, especially infrared sauna, would be wonderful in, I would say, in these patients, but also, let's say, as a preventative measure because you get a lot of uh, heating around you and also infrared, which helps uh, mitochondria. So, as, at the end of the day, the more we understand how comprehensive we must be uh, dealing with our health, the more we may reach the goal to have. Uh, a better longevity for our body and for our mind mm. yeah totally and uh yeah that's a good note to start i'm wrapping things up as well is there anything that we didn't cover that we should or you want to kind of leave a disclaimer for well i mean uh, we should uh, somehow cuddle as i say our mitochondria and uh, when you know what mitochondria are then whatever the situation with the COVID, you know that you have to increase the way you eat, the way you move, the way you think as a general role in preventative medicine and in COVID-19 even more. So at the end of the day, we don't know at the moment if iron chelation, vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, glutathione, heparin, all this stuff uh, is mandatory. We don't know and it's not mandatory at all. But medicine should somehow uh, widen the horizons so to include more low-cost interventions to improve COVID-19 management or as a preventative uh, approach uh, or as a therapeutic approach because we know that infection and the immune dysregulation is so important in this uh, uh, disease but somehow there are ev some evidence which explain that uh, hemoglobin iron hypoxia represent important features in this uh, disease of course we need the much more scientific research before targeting properly this disease, but what I call, what, no, not myself, I mean, what is called translational medicine is important because the more you widen to biology, to biochemistry, to biophysics, and not just medical drugs and technology, the more you get information and translational medicine is important because you merge several disciplines to get more knowledge, and to get a better diagnostic and therapeutic management of these patients and let's say of every patient in the world mm. yeah totally that's a really good good advice um where can people uh, learn more about you and your work or if they can maybe read the study that you published 
Well, the study is open access. You can find it in uh, Clinics and Practice. It is a website of the journal, Clinics and Practice, and uh, very easy to find. I mean, otherwise they can go to my ResearchGate uh, profile, where I put it because it's open access again. So Cavetia Pilo is in ResearchGate, for example. Uh, well, we have a YouTube channel where we are somehow improving because we are not so good as you. I'm a, a follower. I mean, I really admire your huge activity on several, several important aspects of uh, metabolism and generally speaking health and disease. Uh, I do think that uh, people like you may help biomedical science anyway, but we should again open a little bit wider uh, horizons for biomedical science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to put all the links in the show notes. And my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you had up the sooner? Uh, you mean uh, what we could do... Uh, uh, can you elaborate a little bit, sorry? Yeah, like, what, what's like this habit or advice that you uh, wish you adopted sooner in your life, you know, that improved your uh, health and that sort of thing? Well, uh, sincerely speaking, since I started, uh, that was more than three years ago, intermittent fasting. I started intermittent fasting, and you are one of the greatest experts in the world probably about intermittent fasting. That helped me a lot a lot in terms of health. So again, any kind of hormetic pathways, any kind of pathway which helps mitochondrial resilience is interesting in our health. And mm -hmm. even in COVID-19, because you are, let's say, ready to face this battle in case you get it. Uh, so eating better, of course, which means uh, uh, reducing uh, carbohydrates, uh, that's important in my opinion and uh, living with more exercise and again coping with stress mm -hmm. which means uh, increasing resilience uh, the, the tolerance the, the the tolerance to stress is also very very important these are three four basic pillars which help us to improve our health mm. yeah that's really good advice and the total like fasting does uh, increase yeah. your resiliency against uh, just yeah. stress yeah. and uh, the psychological stress as well. You're going to become more like uh, resilient against these kind of minor stressors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, also heat and cold and uh, caffeine and polyphenols. For example, yeah. I take uh, a few specific polyphenols who are extremely good for mitochondria or generally speaking for our health so there is a good combination we may uh, take advantage of and uh, but that's exactly what we want to do with our uh, integrative medicine let's call it or translational medicine mm -hmm. yeah well it's been great talking with you and yeah thanks for uh, reaching out and sharing the study because uh, I wouldn't I think I wouldn't have found it otherwise and it's really I think it's really pretty important the or it's like overlooked aspect the iron and uh, hemoglobin metabolism thank you thank you for that yeah no problem I'll see you around all right that's it for this episode of the body mind Empowerment podcast if you want to support us then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms you can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. 
it's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.